Well, as we return today to our study of the Gospel of John together, I want to begin uh, by asking you guys a question. And I want to let you know up front, it's not my question, it's John's question. I need to answer the question just like you guys need to answer the question. And it's a question that he's been kind of driving us towards without saying that he's driving us towards it, at least since the beginning of chapter 2 of his Gospel. So when you go back to chapter 2, just to kind of replay a little bit to help you see how this whole deal works, that's where John records for us the beginning of Jesus' public ministry and his very first miracle, which was turning water into what? Wine. Good answer. But where did he do it? Before whom did he do it? And what was the response to it? Because that's going to help you begin to kind of discern, hey, what is this question that he's moving me towards? Jesus starts out his public ministry. He performs his very first miracle in Cana of Galilee. Now, what's that? That's Jewish-controlled territory in the south of Israel, or in the north, rather, of Israel. And it's full of Jesus' own people. And what's the response? And you say, okay, Tom, I missed the study, but I'm pretty sure I know what happened because that is a pretty amazing miracle. I mean, that's not an illusion. That's not a magic trick. That's where you're changing the physical property of water and turning it into the physical property, if you will, of wine. That's the kind of miracle that only God can do. That's the kind of miracle, by the way, that's hard to keep a secret too, isn't it? And so I got to imagine that as that miracle and the news of it began to reverberate through that town of Galilee and from that town of Galilee into the whole of Galilee, that a whole lot of people started sincerely and authentically placing their faith in Christ as Lord and King and as Savior of the world. And you would imagine that would happen, but it didn't. Only His disciples believed. That's kind of interesting. All right, so then we turn the page, and next thing you know, we see Jesus, and now He's in the south. He's in Jerusalem, which is what? Jewish-controlled territory, again, amongst His own Jewish people, if you will. And what does He do there? Well, He cleansed the temple. We studied that, but what else did He do? You're like, I think I know this. Again, missed the study, but I'm pretty sure He did a lot of those kind of God-can-only-do-it sort of miracles. Blind-see miracles, deaf-hear miracles, mute-speak miracles, paralyzed-people-get-up-and-walk kind of miracles. And then as a result, Tom, I'm pretty sure that people then started placing sincere and authentic faith in Jesus. They believed in Him. Surely that's what happened. Well, part of that happened. He did do those kinds of miracles, and people did express a belief, which I want to put in quotes, of a sort, but not the kind of belief that's sincere or authentic. John tells us this, John 2, beginning of verse 23, he says, now when Jesus was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, here we go, many believed, put it in quotes, in his name, when they what? When they saw the miraculous signs that he was doing, but then listen to what John says about their belief. He says, but Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to these people who saw him do these miracles and allegedly at least believed in him. And why? Because Jesus knew all people, including us, just as an aside. And he needed no one to bear witness about a man, for he himself knew what was in a man, and he knew that in their particular case, well, their belief was not real. It was not sincere. It wasn't authentic. They didn't love Jesus and seek to selflessly serve Jesus. No, actually... They loved themselves and sought selfishly to get Him to somehow serve them. 
Jesus drew great crowds in Jerusalem, guys, but not because people were coming to him with a belief that he is Lord and King and Savior of the world, but rather because people heard that he's working all kinds of miracles and they were coming to him with the belief that, who knows, maybe if they played their cards right, he might work a miracle for them. You see the difference? There's a question coming, isn't there? So you turn the page on that story, you have the story of Nicodemus. Cool story of a guy that you think, this guy's going to get it. I mean, if anybody's going to get Jesus, he's going to get Jesus. And why? Well, he's a Jew like Jesus, so he's part of Jesus' own people, if you will. But this is a studied man. This is a devout man. This is a man learned in the Scriptures, a professor of Old Testament, we called him when we talked about him. He's a guy who has committed his life to pious obedience to the Lord his God. All of this stuff. I mean, he is a holy guy, isn't he? Now, does he get Jesus? Yeah, but not till chapter 20 or something. In chapter 3, he's sneaking over at night, hoping no one finds out. Interesting. See, what's happening and what John is laying out here is exactly what he told us happened in John 1 verse 11, where he came to us and Jesus said, he said this, he said, Jesus came to his own and his own people did not receive him. They didn't love and seek to serve him. They sought to use him. And there's a difference. So we turned the page on that story and we came to chapter 4 and everything changed. And shockingly, frankly... We see Jesus, and again, he's in Jerusalem, he's in the south. Now he wants to go back to Jewish-controlled territory, again, back to his own people in Galilee, and that's again in the north. But to get there, he passes through this area called Samaria, which lies in between the north and south, and is absolutely not full of his own people. It's full of Samaritans. And the Samaritans, as we talked about last week, are people that, well, their Jewish neighbors to the north and south looked down upon, despised, saw as unclean people, even dangerous people. It's a funny place for Jesus to find friends, isn't it? Yet that's where he finds friends. He travels through, and as we saw last week, how many miracles does Jesus do in Samaria? Want to guess? I'm going to go with none. Zero. But he reveals himself by means of his word clearly and unambiguously to a Samaritan woman with a very questionable past that he meets at a well who comes to sincere and authentic faith in him and then runs back half a mile to her town, this little town of Sychar, and convinces everybody to come out to meet Jesus. And then what happens? Revival breaks out in Samaria. Pretty much everybody in town comes to sincere and authentic faith in Jesus. They persuade him to stay with him for a couple of days. And their faith is very different. Their faith is that in Christ as Savior of the world. Listen to what John says. John 4, verse 42, he says, "...they, these Samaritans who listened to this woman, and they came out to the well and met Jesus for themselves." said to the woman, it's no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have, what, seen his great miracles, and now we believe? No, we haven't seen any. We have heard for ourselves. See the difference? And we know, and to know something means to know it more than just intellectually, like I know it, I can get the answer right on the test. No, I I can get the right answer right in my life. It means to experience. We know experientially that this is indeed who? The Savior 
of the world. And now as we turn the page on that story and turn to the story that we're going to look at today, we see Jesus leaving these Samaritan friends, and he's heading back up into the north. He's going back to the Jewish-controlled territory. He's going back again amongst his own people. And the question is, all right, look, a lot of them are going to come out to see Jesus in Galilee when he gets there. Why? When he rolls into Cana, as we'll see, big crowd. Why? Why are they interested in him? Why do they come out to see him? And then, why have I? Why have you? See how he sets up the question? I mean, are we more like the Samaritans or the Jews? Are we sincerely interested in Christ and love Jesus and want to selflessly give our lives to Him because we understand that He is Savior and Lord and King and all of these things. He alone is worthy of our lives and of our families and of everything that we have and of everything that we are and we're just like all in on Christ or have we come to see a miracle worker hoping that, I don't know, maybe He'll do something for me. Snakes up on you, doesn't it? The question is, why have you come to see Jesus this morning? Why is it that you're interested in Him? And I want you to wrestle with it. It's not my question. I've got to answer it too. We pick up our study in John 4, verse 43, the very next verse, where we read that after the two days that Jesus spent with these Samaritans, He departed for Galilee. So here He goes. He's heading back to the north. For Jesus Himself, we read, had testified that what? That a prophet has no honor in Samaria. No. He had a lot of honor in Samaria. The Samaritans got it. Jesus had testified that a prophet has no honor in his hometown, no honor amongst his own people. And so then what do we see Jesus doing here? We see Jesus intentionally going to a group of people that he knows are going to dishonor him. And not just dishonor him, but eventually crucify him. I mean, I don't know if I'm about you, but, you know, I'm thinking if I'm Jesus, I might have just stayed in Samaria. Because ironically, and this is highly ironic, Samaria is safe. Samaria is comfortable. Samaria is where the friends of Christ really are. So it's a whole lot more attractive, isn't it? I mean, it's kind of like comfy cozy, and you want to kind of get into Samaria, and you're just like, ooh, why would I want to go out there? Well, Jesus has to go out there. Jesus' calling is to go outside of Samaria, if you will. And as I thought about that this week, I thought, you know, true for us too. Now, I realize we live in Fort Lauderdale, and there's no region around here named Samaria. I get all that, but if you look around the room, you will see Samaria. This is really and truly our Samaria. And we're the Samaritans. To know ourselves is to understand that we are an unclean people who have been washed by the blood of Jesus, whom we profess by faith in His Word to be Lord and King and Savior of the world. And so for us, this room is safe. It's comfortable. Heck, we're not only among friends, we're among family. I mean, if you go back to that verse in chapter 1, verse 11, we know where he said that Jesus came to his own and his own did not receive him. He then goes on in the next verse and he says, but to those who did receive him, he gave them the right to be called children of God. We're brothers and sisters in this room and God bless this room. We need this room. 
But we need to leave this room too, because that's our calling, isn't it? It's to take this Jesus and to take him into our homes and into our families and into our offices and into our friendships and into our relationships and into our schools, into our city, into the world, knowing in advance that it's not always going to be fun. It's not always going to be roses. It's not always going to be easy. It's not going to be inexpensive. Hey, guess what? We're going to be misunderstood at times, misrepresented at times, talked and thought poorly of at times. People are going to think that maybe you're a little off or a lot off. Or maybe just kind of dense to believe in this Jesus. We're called to go outside the walls of our Samaria, if you will, with this Christ, His mercy and His message, knowing in advance that some people are going to reject us, take advantage of us. But we're called to go nonetheless, and we're called to go, however, with an eternal perspective, understanding that those of us who share in the sufferings of Christ will forever share also in the glories of Christ. There's a great upside, too. But the point is, if you think about it, your reaction, my reaction to that calling says a lot in answer to the question of, okay, why am I really interested in Jesus? Okay, why did I show up this morning? Why? Because if what we treasure is comfort, if what we treasure is popularity, if what we treasure is safety and earthly security, if you will, if what we treasure is peace, then we're not going to go. We're not going to engage. We're not going to take Jesus into our homes and families and offices and schools and relationships and city and the world. But if Christ is our treasure and our identity and our comfort and our security in this life and in the next, if in Him we find our peace, then we'll go. But the idea is, that our interest is in Him. So John says that after the two days that Jesus spent in Samaria with these Samaritan people who got it, He departed for Galilee to a group of His own people who did not get it. But He went anyway, knowing this, and you know He knows it, because Jesus Himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in His hometown. And John then says, so when Jesus came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed Him, but let's put that in quotes too, because notice why they welcomed Him having seen all that Jesus had done, meaning all of the miracles that He had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast, which tells you what? It tells you that their welcome was not altogether sincere. It tells you, for example, that they wanted bread from Jesus, but they didn't want the bread of life Himself. You see the difference? Give us water, Lord, but you know we're not interested in the source of living water. Give us knowledge, but we're not interested in the one who is himself all-knowing. Wisdom, but not the all-wise one. Teaching, but not the teacher. Counsel, but not the counselor. Comfort, but not the comforter. Gifts and provision, but not the gift giver or the one who provides. We want forgiveness, but we don't want the forgiver. Salvation, but not the Savior. They wanted a Jesus of their own invention is the idea. Somebody who came to them on their terms, made little or no demands on them at all, and interacted with their lives as they sort of saw fit and managed. And that's not Christ. He's very different. 
He's Lord. He's King. He's Savior of the world. And, you know, he's not divisible, like you can't divide him up. I'm going to cut Jesus in ten pieces, and we'll name them different things. And then I'll pick and choose which parts of him I want. I want the forgiveness Jesus, because I'm way interested in that, you know? I'd like some teaching from Jesus. I'll take a little peek. But I'm not... King? No, no, no. Stay over there. Lord, keep, keep to yourself. We want the blessings of Christ as we define them, but we don't want Christ, or do we? Jesus is the blessing, guys. He is the treasure. He is the life and life giver. And He alone can be approached on His terms. And what terms are those? We come to Him as humble sinners, as undeserving recipients of His free grace and mercy. And then we turn right around and offer Him the life that He has purchased with His own blood, turn it over to His lordship and kinship, and guess what? We find out. He knows how to manage it much better than we do. It's remarkable. Why did you come to Jesus this morning? What's the source of your interest? So John says, after the two days that Jesus spent in Samaria with the Samaritans who got it, he departed for Galilee to a group of his own people who did not, for Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his hometown. And so then, when Jesus came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him insincerely, having seen all of the miracles that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. And so Jesus came again to Cana, that place where he had performed his first miracle in Galilee, where he had made water into wine and where he was welcomed as a miracle worker, but not as who he really is. And then John says, and at Capernaum. So where's that? It's 15 miles away, directly east for the most part of Cana, and downhill unless you're coming from Capernaum, in which case you're walking uphill. Capernaum is located on the northern part of the Sea of Galilee. It's 700 feet below sea level. So if you're walking from there to Cana, it's a long 15 miles. And at Capernaum, John tells us there was an official. Well, the word official refers officially to someone who is attached to a king. It's a unique kind of a word, and probably this guy was attached to Herod Antipas, who was the tetrarch. He was like the governor for the Roman Empire of this whole area called Galilee. He's a pretty big wig kind of a guy. So at Capernaum, there was an official, this guy, whose son was ill, and not just ill, but as we'll see in a second, was dying. And this man, who has many resources at his disposal, who has many connections at his disposal, but all of which apparently now have failed to heal his son, walks personally 15 miles uphill to Cana because he's heard that the miracle worker has come. And he's desperate. And so he comes amongst the Galilean Jews. He's part of the crowd that gathers around Jesus. And he probably wasn't a crowd favorite. He's attached himself to a despised man to help manage a despised kingdom, if you will. He's probably a Jew, but most likely a hated Jew. In many ways, he's like unto a Samaritan. Keep your eye on that, because there's a difference. 
So it says in Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down to Capernaum and to heal his son, for his son was at the point of death. And so Jesus said to him, he says, unless you, and the word you there is actually important, it doesn't just mean this guy. It's plural. He's talking to the whole crowd. It's like they've all come to him for the wrong reason. And now he's going to use this as an opportunity to talk to all of them. He says, unless you, meaning all of you people, see signs and wonders, you people will not sincerely and authentically believe in me. Oh, you'll believe that I can do something for you, but you're missing me. I'm the treasure. I'm the one you need to really believe in. And the official said to Jesus, Sir, you know, I really wish that I had time for an extended theological conversation with you, but I've just run 15 miles uphill, and my son is dying, and I hope he's still alive right now, frankly. And what I need for you to do, I need for you to come down to Capernaum with me before my child dies and so that you can heal him is the point. And then Jesus does something that's absolutely brilliant, which is almost a silly statement because it's like, well, does he ever do anything that isn't? But, but I want you to appreciate it. Watch what he does. Jesus said to this man, he says, go, your son will live. Go home. Done. Now, why is that brilliant? What is he asking this guy to do? He's asking him to believe that something he cannot see or in any way, shape, or form verify. He can't call his house on a cell phone. He can't shoot an email. He can't Skype in. Is going to occur. And he just needs to go home. And he's asked to believe that simply because Jesus Christ has said that it is so. It's awesome. He's asking him to know this by faith. And again, to know is not just to know intellectually. No, to know in such a way that now it shows up in his life. He will have to now go. He'll have to live by faith in the Word of Christ, which is that his son is going to recover. And that's not a little matter, is it? The health of your children. Go and your son will live. Fascinating. So this guy has a decision to make. I mean, he either needs to content himself with the word of Christ and live by faith in his word and go, and his son will live, as Jesus has said. Or he needs to say to Jesus, okay, listen, I hear what you're saying and everything, and that's real cool, and I appreciate the sentiment, but here's the deal. Your word is not enough for me. And grab Jesus by the lapel and drag him, good news, 15 miles downhill this time, to his house so that he can physically see Jesus, physically do the miracle in person. But he can't do both. And neither can we. Now, I just thought about, go and your son will live. I think Jesus says that to us in a variety of different areas of our lives, and he says it all the time. Let me pick the most poignant. He comes to us in terms of our dollars and cents. God does. And he says, listen, I want to talk to you a little bit about this. This is my number one rival. And I want you to worship me with it, saying on a regular basis, with 10% of your annual gross income. Stunning, isn't it? It's a lot for some of us. That I am your God and this isn't. That I am your security and this isn't. That I am the one you look to and this isn't. You need to do it because you need to do it. 
and to honor me with it as an act of worship. But then he attaches a promise to it, and it's a way cool promise. Like, we're all immediately interested, because then he starts talking about things like opening the windows of heaven and pouring out a blessing and all that jazz that we get really excited about. But what we want to do then is sit down with our alleged king and say, hey, you know what, here's the deal. Why don't you open the windows first? You know, and then when I see the blessings kind of pouring out, I'm going to start thinking about that whole tithing idea. Now he just says, go and your son will live. So then, do you content yourself with God's word? Or do you want to take him by the lapel and say, "Ah, I'm sorry, that's close, but not quite good enough for me. He does it in the area of sex. He comes to us. This is incredibly challenging. And he says, look, I'm the author of sex. I understand how you as a person physically, spiritually, mentally, psychologically are made. Guess why? I made you. And I've given you this beautiful, incredibly powerful thing that has the power to bless or to destroy. You're not divisible either in the sense that this isn't just some physical thing that's like disconnected from your heart and soul. He tells us these things. And you know what? We know them. And we prove them true. And so he comes to us for our own good, and he says, I want to regulate this area of your lives. Here is my regulation. Yeah, no, I know it's countercultural. I know it's, you know, archaic sounding. But go and your son will live. So I've got blessing over here that is yours by faith. And you can either receive it there by faith and experience it, but it's future, isn't it? It's down the road. You can't taste it at this point, can you? Or you can live with regret. Go and your son will live. Comes to us and he talks to us about this life and he says things like, this world is not your home. Describes us as sojourners. We're just travelers is the idea. We're kind of just, you know, passing through. Abraham, all the patriarchs live in tents. They don't build cities. Even Israel, as they come up into the land, they don't build cities. They inherit them. The gift of God. He's saying over and over again, this world is not your home. This world is not your home. This world is not your home. You're just passing through. Travel light. You're not going to be here long. And yet we live as though this is our eternal home. And he calls us to a living light kind of life that is selfless, that's sacrificial, that's dedicated to him, that has our eyes on heaven, that is evaluated in terms of our values and everything else in light of the fact that that's our home. This is not. And he says things to us like, and it's by grace, I will eternally reward you for living this kind of of life in this land that you're just passing through. Here's the problem. We can't see, smell, hear, taste, or touch any of those rewards today, can we? So what is Jesus saying then? Go and your son will live. Now, the Bible defines faith like this. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for. Not the things that we already have. It's the assurance of things that we hope for. It's the conviction of things not Seen And what gives us that assurance, what gives us that conviction is faith in the word of Jesus. That's it. We have his word. And the idea is that that needs to be good enough for us. It is for the Samaritans. And as we see now, it is for this guy. Jesus says, verse 50, to this man, go and your son will live. And then very much unlike the Galileans, or for that matter, the Jews to the south, And very much like the Samaritans, 
The man believed, we read, the word that Jesus spoke to him, and then he lived by that belief because he went on his way. And as he was going down to Capernaum, and you got to imagine this, his servants who had come looking for him, they knew where he went, they knew why he had gone there, they knew the road to get there, and now they're looking for him, and for a reason, don't you think? And so as you enter into the story, just imaginatively, I mean, you can imagine this guy and he's walking down to Capernaum and no doubt he's going, oh, what am I going to get when I find there? But I'm believing in Jesus. I'm believing in Jesus. It's just hard at times, isn't it? And he sees his servants up the street and no doubt they see him. And I don't know about you, but I'm just kind of picturing him sort of freezing up right there in the middle of the road. It's kind of like when you get a lump somewhere in your body and it's a little awkward and weird, and you're thinking, I don't know that I want to go to the doctor. I know I need to go to the doctor, but I don't know that I want to go to the doctor because what if he says... This isn't good. And I just sort of picture that guy having this kind of a moment in the street. He sees his servants. They're running toward him, weeping. And he knows they're crying because his son has either been healed or he's gone. As he's going down to Capernaum, this official who's gone forth in faith in this promise of Jesus says that his servants met him, and they told him that his son was recovering, and I think a worship service happened right there in the street. And so he asked them the hour when he began to get better, and they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him, and the father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. And he himself believed, we read again. It's quite the affirmation of his faith, I would think. But not just him this time, also all of his household. And unlike the crowds that he had left behind, their faith was sincere. And it was genuine. He believed in Christ's Word. And he experienced the fulfillment of it. Theirs was a faith that loved Jesus and sought to serve Him you know, came humbly and said, here I am, such as I am. (laughs) Let's see what you can do with this, you know. Not valued and loved themselves and sought to find a way to get him to serve them. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is King. Jesus is Savior of the world. He's not a magician. He's not a miracle worker that we come to solely because what we really want is to get Him to do something for us, as opposed to really wanting Him. That's the difference. That's the question. So John snuck up on you with that one, I guess, huh? Are you more like the Samaritans or the Jews? More like this man or the Galileans? Do you love Jesus and want to serve Him, or do you want Him to serve you? Why did you come to see Jesus? Why are you interested in Him?